First of all, it's on page 1133. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. It's not immediately a passage that you're going to jump at and stick on your wall, but it is a passage that I want to suggest to you, no matter your background, no matter where you're from, supposing you've just walked in off the street and you've never heard anything about Christianity, what you're going to hear just now is just so incredibly important. And supposing you've been a Christian for many, many, many years, I will be really shocked if you say that you don't struggle with the particular issue that we are uh, going to look at. Before we do that, though, again, can I just say to Vicky, what we will really miss you. Um, you are doing the coolest degree possible, a degree in ethical hacking, which I didn't think was real when you first told me about it, but uh, you're not going to have a shortage of work, and we do pray that God will bless you back up in Inverness. Um, can I also say, again, on behalf of myself and Annabelle, how uh, grateful we are to you all, and we're glad to be back. Um, while we're uh, away in, in Sydney couple of things I got out of the habit of doing. One was driving a car, and the other was I've done very little preaching on Sunday, so cut me some slack, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, and then it is just a, a joy to be able to, to come back into this in Romans 7. And I was thinking about how, trying to explain this, because it's one of those passages, it's kind of, if you know Romans, you kind of say, get on to chapter 8, because that's the really good stuff. And, but this is just really important to grasp. So I thought I would try and explain it in this way. Now, um, D Duncan Grigg assures me that he's really cool and he knows what this means. So I'm sure the rest of you do as well. Uh, it's a wonderful old film with Marlon Brando, black and white film, which I'd highly recommend for you to go and see. Bizarrely, it shows you how much the culture's changed. It was banned in the UK for a year. And you think, oh, there must be something dreadful. And it just looks like a children's program nowadays. So it shows you how much has changed. But it's a brilliant film in lots of ways. And some people think it's a film that's responsible for uh, a lot of things that were good and some not so good in terms of uh, the music scene and being cool and so on. But um, you'll see what it's got to do with this in a moment. The story of the film, if you don't know, and basically it's been around for 70 years, I think, so you can forgive me if I if this spoil it for you. But um, there are a group of bikers who invade a small town in the southern U.S. And basic line is the townspeople are square and the bikers are cool, especially Brando. He's like mega cool. And lots of people have wanted to be like him ever since. But there's a problem. There's a nastiness and a lawlessness about the bikers and the whole thing leads to chaos. And it's, uh, for me, it's an, it's an image, it's a picture of our culture that the people who want to do right and do what's good, they 
are perceived as being repressed and, and square, if you like. And the people who are really cool are also the ones who maybe are morally more messed up. It's why in films, have you ever thought this in films, usually the most interesting characters are the bad guys. You know, all, almost all the time that is the case. Now, in our culture and in our society, we want freedom, but we also want law. And the paradoxical thing is, we've grown up in a culture which has kind of adopted, I want to break free, I'm going to be free, we're free people, and it's free for us to choose. But as that has happened, we get a society that has more and more laws. So being away in Australia for three months, I come back, I guarantee you there's at least 100 new laws that have been passed. We have laws everywhere. And people are desperately looking for guidance. So you have, for example, a man like Jordan Peterson speaking particularly to young men and tens of thousands going to hear him. And what's his book? 12 Rules for Life. And one of the rules is tidy your room. Now, when I was a teenager, being told to tidy your room was not cool. Now it's mega cool to tidy your room. So I don't know how that's happened. The world's a strange place. But he's just got a list of principles and, and rules and laws. Or take this one. Um, can we... This is from Baldragon Academy. And uh, again, what do they want? You know, you get the usual stuff about we want to be equality and so on. But these are the rules. Be respectful to staff and other pupils. Listen to staff and follow instructions. Switch off all mobile phones. By the way, there's a new law in France. All mobile phones are banned in schools. Um, maybe we should follow that one. Pursue excellence. Tidy your work area at the end of a lesson. Embrace challenges and adopt a growth mindset. No idea what that means, but that's, I'm sure the kids will. Arrive on time and be ready to start work. So we want people to be free. We want people to express themselves. But in order for us to work together, we need law. Now that ties in with Christianity and how people perceive Christianity. They, they would say, if only we had more Christianity in our culture, then we'd be a much better society. Or people say, if I become a Christian, then I, there are certain rules and laws I will obey, and that will make things uh, a better place. And often, in mistake, we can teach our children a form of Christianity, which is if you do good things, then God will reward you. And if you do bad things, then the devil will get you or you'll be in trouble. Now, if you think that's what Christianity is, this is what Paul deals with in this passage. Stephen, can you move on to the next one, please? Yeah. Sorry, Fraser. And Romans 7, we read it. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is authority over someone. Now, what Paul is doing in the middle of this book is discussing the relationship between the law uh, and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, Paul has told them, has said he's delighted to be bringing the gospel to them. He's shown that the society needs the gospel because of the way that people have rejected God. In chapter 2, he addresses the Jews who said, we've got the law and the Mosaic law, and Paul says, well, yes, the Gentiles have the law written in their hearts as well, but they still need the gospel. Chapter 3 shows us that the law tells us that we all sin and we all do things that are wrong. Chapter 4 gives Abraham as an example of being made right with God by faith, not by the law. 
Chapter 5 tells us that Christ came to die for us and that we're freed from the curse of the law. And chapter 6 gives us one of the consequences of that, that we are dead to sin but alive in Christ. And now, in this chapter, he looks at the relationship between law and grace and the role of law in the Christian life. And I think this is really important to grasp. For me as a Christian, I've struggled with it for many, many years. Because on the one hand, legalism is such a bad thing. And then on the other hand, ignoring God's law is such a bad thing. So what should we do? How should we live as Christians? What does it mean to be under law but under grace? What does it mean to serve, not in the old way of the written code, but the new way of the spirit? And again, there are far too many Christians today who say, I don't need the old way of the written code, the Bible. I've got the spirit within me and everything's wonderful. And the spirit will tell me what to do. And yet that creates enormous problems. Now, I want to recommend a book to you, and I occasionally do recommend books. This one, I, I cannot stress how much I want to recommend it, and it's not because he's here, but Sinclair's book on the whole Christ is unquestionably the best theological book I've ever read and the most helpful book on this subject that I have ever read. And your reaction might be like mine when you discover that it's about a, uh, uh, an 18th century Scottish theological controversy, the marrow men and, and everything, and you think, oh, yeah, right. That, what's that got to say to me? I'm telling you, if you get what's in that book and it's written very clearly, it will be of more help to you in your Christian life than anything you will read outside of the Bible. So I, I do recommend that. I also recommend... Um, couple of books that John Owen has done, but Sinclair's is much, much simpler, and it's based on John Owen anyway. So uh, it's, it, I, I would strongly recommend that. But what we're looking at here comes from chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. Sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So what does it mean to be not under the law, but under grace? And what does it mean to be transferred from the kingdom of the law to the kingdom of the Spirit. And what does that have to do with you if you are not a Christian? The answer is, you're under one of those kingdoms. And you, we shall see why. So let's ask, first of all, what is the law? Some people think here that Paul is referring to the Roman law, which he's not. I mean, it's just you can go and read all about it if you wish, but I'm not going to really waste too much time. I, I do remember being in a car once when uh, a certain free Presbyterian minister was driving at, I think, up the A9 at about 95 miles an hour, and I said, don't you observe the speed limit? And he jokingly said, well, I'm not under law, but under grace. I was really hoping that he would have got pulled over and uh, been told uh, or fined by the police. You can't say, I'm, I'm, I'm not under law. I, I'm not under the law of the government or of the land. It doesn't mean that. It's not talking about the Roman law. I don't think it's talking about law in general either. The law gets used in different ways in the Bible, but here it's almost certainly talking about the Mosaic law as revealing God's will to us. So it's, it's God's law, particularly the Mosaic law. The, the Jews prided themselves on having been given the Torah, the law. And what Paul says here is that we are bound to the law. We have to do it. We're given God's rules and God's principles, and God doesn't say, here's a bit of advice for you. 
It's not like Jordan Peterson, here's 12 rules for life. And God's saying, here's 10 principles for life. And you, you make of them what you will. Invent your own version. God says, this is my law and you must keep it. We might say to God, give me some rules. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me principles of conduct and I will keep them. And that's the, the whole way that our society operates. Even in society that prides itself on saying, oh, we're, we're, we're not legalists. Actually, we, we're in a society where there are endless laws. Now, just to give you one small example. Uh, Annabelle was able to uh, do some wonderful work uh, with uh, refugees and, uh, and others in uh, Sydney. And I had the privilege of being invited out to a picnic for uh, refugees. It was a very humbling and, and wonderful experience. But one of the things about it that just made me smile was um, there's so many regulations, even just to make a cup of tea. We just want to make them a cup of tea. Yeah, but you've got to have this, 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 you've got to have that. Now, I know you need health and safety, but like it's a cup of tea. And yet, there's just all these rules and all these laws. And that's what happens in our society more and more. You need the, the laws. You need rules. Um, you can sing this. You can sing this. I, I was, uh, w- enjoyed watching the World Cup, and the England football fans are hilarious. I think they're hilarious. And, um, and yet, you can, well, you can't sing this. You can't sing about Brexit. Well, why not? Let them sing whatever they want. You know, and, and at least they weren't swearing at that particular point. But... You know, here's the rules. You'll get fined if you do this. You'll get fined if you do that. It really is quite extraordinary. Well, this argument about religion is so many people. Keep the rules and you'll be okay. But the radical teaching of Christianity is this. Christianity is the antithesis of that. It's the opposite of that. Because Christianity says, here's the rules. Here's what God wants. You can't keep them. You can't do it. You do not have the ability to keep these rules Why? Because we're dead in sins and trespasses. Because there's a heart of darkness within us. Because there's a law within us which wages war against God. And again, by the way, that's what's wrong with our society when a government says, we'll make these rules and people will keep them. No, they won't. They will find a way around them. And you'll have to keep making more and more laws. It just never, ever works. Because there's something radically wrong with us. And law can never deal with the problem of the heart and of the will and of the mind. So Paul has been telling us in Romans that there's a law within us which wages war against God, that there's, we were enemies of God. When you have a religion of rules and regulations, it is not Christianity. It's not the gospel. The gospel is good news, and the gospel paradoxically is good news about death. And Paul here uses an illustration, which I think is, I think it's a brilliant illustration, but sometimes don't read commentators, because some of the commentators on this say, oh, it's all confused and all messed up, and I'm going, no, I, I, I understand it, so it must be quite simple, really. You don't need to confuse it. It's quite straightforward. He does it about marriage. Now, this is a wedding that I was at yesterday. Uh, Carol and Andrew, who come here, uh, it was a lovely wedding down at Tay Park House, and if you're intending getting married, and you've got a wee bit of money, then uh, you can hire the house for the weekend and go for it. It's, it's a beautiful place. But as part of the wedding, there are the vow. And some people don't like this. You know, and, and I'm, I'm sure 
Carol Andrew won't mind, but when Carol was taking her vows, she was crying, you know, and especially the bit about till death has to part. Because you don't want to think about death at a wedding. But that's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm, I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm going to commit myself to them for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until we're parted by death. And that is the illustration that Paul uses here. He's, let me go back to the verses, or forward to the verses. He's saying, just when you're married to somebody, you're bound to them. Now, I know that there are men who like to joke, oh, you're losing your freedom when you get married. Uh, In one sense, you are, because you're bound. You're saying, you're standing there, you're taking that vow, and you're saying, I'm not going to go out with somebody else. I'm going to be with this one person. I'm going to be committed to them. And that's a cost. Both of you are doing that. There's a cost for both of you. You're not marrying your mother. You're not marrying your father. You're not marrying um, your, your slave. Although sometimes in relationships we may feel that we get like that. But you're making a commitment that is for life. And you're saying, I'm giving up my personal freedom to be married to this person, to commit to this person. Um, Paul is saying, when you do that, you're not free to marry someone else. There are things that you're not free to do until they die. And then when they die, you're free to marry. So I heard this week of a free church minister and a free church minister's uh, wife that they're getting married. Both of them, their partners had died. And now they're getting married. They're free now to marry, but they were not free to marry whilst their partners were still alive. Okay, the analogy is there. The illustration is there. What is Paul saying? He says, we've died. But how have we died when we're still alive? Later on, he's going to say, who's going to free us from this body of death? But what he's saying is this. He's saying, we are bound to the law of God, which will condemn us until we have been set free by death. But it's not our death. You'll see that it is the death of Jesus Christ. Let me come back through the wedding. Oops, and again. Fraser, can you move me on to the next? Yeah, that one. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, Paul is very precise in what he's doing. I don't think his illustration is confused at all. He's saying the death of Christ frees us from the curse of the law. And I just want to unpack that a little bit. He said in chapter 6, verse 2, that we died to sin. That the penalty of sin is breaking the law. And we've died to that. Now, here's the problem. The Mosaic law ruled over the Jewish people. Chapter 2, verse 14, and the Gentiles. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law for themselves even though they do not have the law. You know it's wrong to kill. You know it's wrong to murder. You know it's wrong to lie. You know it's wrong to abuse people. You know it's wrong to cheat. You know it's wrong to do lots of things that you do. That's the incredible thing. You could be here and be a murderer and you know that that's wrong, but I'm telling you there are people here who wouldn't say boo to a goose and who have done many things that are wrong. And how, how, do, we, how do we get out of this? How, how are we rescued from it? The law demands obedience, but it doesn't give us the power to obey. So it locks us up under sin and death. 
We cannot obey it. We cannot save ourselves by doing good. Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says the, the law brings wrath. Chapter 5, verse 20, he says the law causes us to sin. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's a very provocative statement. He's saying God gave his law to provoke us to sin even more. To show us how much we are against God. He didn't give us the law to say, now do this and you're going to live. Because none of us could do it. And that hugely, hugely significant to grasp. To cite uh, John Owen, and I'm paraphrasing him very simply, but I, he, he, is, he goes into great depth in this, and I, I just love it. The difference between the law and the gospel is this, says Owen, I am paraphrasing him. The law gives no strength against sin, but grace does. The law doesn't give you strength to not to sin, but grace does. The law doesn't give freedom. It is the gospel that delivers from the law. It's the gospel that's the perfect law that brings freedom. And then here's the most significant thing. Christ is not in the law. The law does not give you Jesus Christ. The law shows you that you need Jesus Christ, but it doesn't give you Jesus Christ. And that's why those Christian churches which teach Christianity is about do this and you will live, do this and you will be happy, do this and you will be blessed, they are anti the gospel because it's the very opposite of what the gospel is. It's why I really, really have to take a New Year's resolution six months early and not listen to services on the radio, on the BBC anyway, because so many times it's law, law, law. And, and our society says, no, it's not law. It's not law. They're talking about helping refugees. They're talking about being kind to people. They're talking about picking up litter. They're talking about singing nice songs. That's not law. That's good stuff to do. Yes, it's good stuff to do, but it condemns you because you can't do it properly. You don't, not in your heart, you just, you, you don't have the ability to do what God requires. Christ is not in the law. So we need to be free from the law. Now, in verse 5, you'll see he talks about when we're in the sinful nature, the, the flesh is probably a, a better translation, although flesh gives this idea of just physical body, and the Bible is not opposed to the physical body, but it's a way of expressing the old regime, the old way. We're living in the old non-Christian regime. He says the law comes. What does it do? It arouses sinful passions. It stimulates your innate rebelliousness against God. It doesn't save you. The law actually probably makes you worse. But now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? So many Christians talk about this, and Christian preachers talk about, I am not under the law, the written law, the, the grammar as it is. I'm under you know, the, the pneuma, the spirit. I'm under the spiritual law. And they talk about it in the way that Bishop Curry spoke about love at the royal wedding. They say it 57 times, and it means nothing each time. What does it mean? to be in the new way of the Spirit. It doesn't mean how you feel. It doesn't mean all you need is love. I'll, let me try and explain it this way. Legalists are under the law. They're in bondage. They seek to be justified, made right with God. They seek to be made holy. 
be sanctified by keeping God's law. And legalism is something that is within the heart of every one of us. And religious legalists are the absolute worst. And it crushes you. It absolutely crushes you. You can never do it. You think, right, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do this. If only life could be so simple as tidy your room and everything will be okay. I'd encourage you to tidy your room. I'd encourage myself to tidy my room occasionally. But everything's not going to be okay. Here's 10 principles for living life with your partner. Okay, good. Have a date night. That's fine. Keep all those laws. Still not going to make you have that perfect life. 10 rules for finance. I mean, go into any bookshop and there's rules for this and principles for this. And none of it sets you free. It oppresses and it squashes you. And religious legalism is pretty well, I think, the worst of all. It's a weight. And if your view is, I'm going to do my best to do what God says, I'm going to do my best, then you are, you are, you are crushing yourself. But the opposite of that, what we call the antinomians or the libertines, they reject the law altogether. They've turned liberty into license. They'll say, I'll do what I want. I can. Now I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I like. I'm free. And so they use the freedom that God gives to pervert that freedom and to destroy others and to destroy themselves. John Stock calls what Paul here speaks of, he calls it law-fulfilling free people, which is a bit of a mouthful. But I think it's a pretty good description. We're free from the law for justification and sanctification. In other words, keeping the law won't save us and keeping the law won't make us holy. But being saved enables us to keep the law, enables us to please God, enables us to do what is right in his sight. It means that we are set free to do what Christ wants. And that's why in verse 5, you'll notice there, that the, he talks about the fruit. We bore fruit for death, but now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We bear fruit for life. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful contrast. It is a contrast between the old covenant, um, the written code, and the Spirit. The old covenant law was written on tablets of stone. The Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. Um, I have a confession to make that when uh, Andrew had said, we want to go through Ezekiel while you're away, I went, yeah, right. But, you know, trust them, let them see. It'll never work. Well, I was wrong. It did work. I've listened to the sermons. Absolutely brilliant. And especially last Sunday's evenings where all the rules, as far as I'm concerned, are broken. How can you preach on Ezekiel chapter 42 to 48 in one sermon? Brilliant. It was, honestly, it was heartwarming to hear because it's saying the temple is now God's people and Jesus dwells with his people and the law is written on God's heart, on our hearts rather. The Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. And that's what Christianity is. Now, again, we have this rather strange thing that people go, well, you kind of reform Christians, you're really into the Bible and, and the Word and so on, and, and there's no emotion and there's no pathos and there's no spirit. And I'm going, are you kidding? Listen to both sermons from last Sunday and you will hear real godly emotion. I was very moved by both sermons from last Sunday here. 
God speaks to us, and through his word, he writes his law on our hearts. I love Martin Luther has just, sometimes he comes up with some great phrases. Um, I just read one recently. It's got nothing to do with the sermon, but I just thought it was such brilliant. Only Luther could get away with it. He said, the, the streets of hell are paved with the skulls of bold friars. And I thought, okay, <laughs> that's a colorful language. Well, in another colorful way, he says this. We must fear for our time. And he's writing about the 16th century and the invention of the printing press, which he used greatly, by the way. We must fear for our time in which, thanks to the publication of many books, people indeed become very learned men, but also very unlearned Christians. Let me rephrase that to the 21st century. We must fear for our time in which, thanks to the internet, Google and Wiki, people indeed become very learned men or women, but also very unlearned Christians. What's the point of knowing things in your head if it isn't written on your heart? Huh? What's the point? One of the worst things that I've discovered with people, you get people sometimes that say, oh, I'm really into apologetics or I'm really into theology. They're into reading it. They're into arguing about it. But they don't feel it. And that's the antithesis of what God is doing as he speaks to us through his word. It's like Wesley's heart being strangely warmed as he heard um, Luther's preface to the Romans being read. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the old life is flesh and law and sin and death. And the new life is the spirit and freedom and fruit for God and eternal life. And let me just give you two illustrations of how that works before um, we finish. Let's take something like the Lord's Day. Some of you here grew up as Sabbatarians. You know what that meant? I remember going out in Edinburgh to watch a film on a Saturday night. And we were halfway through the film at midnight. And the person who owned the house came in. Off. It's the Lord's Day. You can't watch the rest of the film. You can come back at midnight tomorrow night and watch the second half. And I was going, well, that's Sunday. We don't watch. Oh, never mind. But 12 till 12. That was it. Don't hang your wash now on a Sunday. What's a Sabbath day's walk? Well, it's a walk to the Sunday school or to the church. Beyond that, no. So it, it, it became a kind of legalism. And it was wrong. But the opposite of that is people who go, oh, well, what do we need Sunday for? We're set free. Every day's the same. Every day we praise Jesus. Every day we meet. No, you don't. I'm sorry, you don't. You don't meet every day for worship. You don't meet every day. Every day you don't praise Jesus. And the trouble is, if you turn Sunday into just another day, you've lost a great opportunity that God has given because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what does it mean keeping the Lord's Day as a Christian? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to argue meant two, two ice creams on a Sunday, not one. So I, I love that one because my parents, you know, you don't buy any ice cream on a Sunday. And then I made the mistake here many, many years ago of saying that they changed their minds and they decided if we were going to go to church on a Sunday night and we lived 45 minutes away, they'd buy us fish and chips every time we came back. And I mentioned that as an illustration and there was a family in here from Perth who visit on a Sunday evening. Some of you will know them and they said, oh, we're going to kill you for that illustration because we have to go up to the bakers every time we finish here at St. Peter's to get food for going home. But in a way, that's, that's kind of right. You know, there, there's, you keep the Sabbath... You're saying, it's, this is the Lord's day. So I'm not keeping it so I can get a kind of whole lot of brownie points with God because I didn't do this and I did do this. 
We're keeping the Lord's Day because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead and we celebrate it and it's a beautiful day and to miss it is really desperate. And we love being with the Lord's people because not to share together is like missing a family meal. And, you know, there are so many other things. So we, we, we do it not out of a sense of religious burden but out of a sense of freedom. And that's the same with service. We don't do what God says and serve him because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. The Christian life is serving the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. It's a new way of serving. In other words, you're not doing it because your name's on the rota and because it's your turn. You're doing it because you love the Lord's people and you want to serve and you want to help. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see that in practice. You know, I was thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I will say this. Um, I, I watch the way that different people serve, and it's really quite remarkable. But I think one of the ways that I, I just most admire is the way that uh, Annabelle serves people in terms of hospitality and so on. You think, well, it's just providing a meal. No, it's not just providing a meal. It's providing a meal with love, and it's doing a huge amount of work, and not doing it just because you say, Oh, I've got to do it. It's my job. No, it's not your job. You do it because it's your heart. And that's what we want. We want to be able to serve people in our heart. Now, I know, take it, the people who are through teaching in Sunday school just now, I'm sure there's two or three teachers who are going, oh, I just wish I wasn't here. Oh, I've had enough. I'm fed up. Or you're in the crash and you're saying, oh, not again. Well, yeah, we go through that, all of us. We're human. We go through that. But what a difference it makes to be taught in Sunday school by a teacher who loves the Lord and who loves you and is there because they love you. What a difference. And what a difference in a church to have people who say, we want to serve. We just want to serve. That's all we want to do because we love Jesus. Not because we're trying to impress people. Not because we're trying to you know, earn our way into heaven. Not because we're trying to prove our status. Just we love Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And that's why, I'll come back to this about the churches. When I hear, again, just again, just so depressing in the British church to hear an evangelical like Steve Chalk saying, it's horrible that the cross is about blood. It's not, it's about love. It's not, I'm going, you're taking the cross away from us. You're taking the atonement away from us. And people say, you can't preach that stuff. You need to, you know, we need to, the church should be about what does, what does the cross say about social justice or, and all this kind of stuff? I'm saying, no, you, you don't understand. Rather than setting people free from this oppressive religion, you're giving them an oppressive religion. Because, you know, that, you know the, the song, I want to break free and uh, all the things like that. The only people who are truly free are those who have been set free by Christ. And what sets us free is the gospel, not the law. And I, I, I'm so convinced of this that, that if we grasp that, even as Christians, we, we've know, we know it in some ways or others, but if we grasped it, it would make such a difference to us. We are free. We are free. There's nothing the devil can do to us. There's nothing we can earn. In fact, there's nothing that you could do that would take away God's love from you. That's the extent to what, to what Christ has done. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful way to serve. 
And that's why no legalism, we're not going down the road of legalism, but we are also not going down the road of, hey, who cares, we just do whatever we want. No, we don't. We serve. We serve because we love. And maybe this is a good way to finish. Um, Martin Luther, again, we must ask God for divine grace so that we may become new in spirit, willing and doing all good works with a joyous, ready heart and a free and manly mind. I'm sure the women are included in that and not moved by servile fear or by some childish desire. But this alone, the Holy Spirit, works in us. Let me go back to Marlon Brando. I mean, he's so cool. The shades, the motorbike, the what are you rebelling against? Ah, you tell me what it is, I'll rebel against it. You know, it just he's the epitome of that. And yet, a lawless society, women being abused, all the things, the drunkenness, everything that comes from that. And there's a sense in which the alternative to that, to be square, to be hypocritical, that's not attractive either. And in a sense, what that film is suggesting, this is what Paul is saying you can have. You're set free, but you're set free for goodness. You're set free for love. You're set free in just an absolutely wonderful and marvelous way, not moved by servile fear or by some childish desire. I bet that you're like me, that an awful lot of what you and I do is motivated by servile fear or childish desire. And that's why, never been heard the gospel before, you need to hear this. That's why you've heard the gospel for 70 years. You still need to hear it because the desire that you have needs to be a response to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that through Jesus we've died to the law, that we're no longer bound to keep it, but we have been set free to serve you in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Bless us as we wrestle with our own motivations. Bless those, O oh Lord, as yet who do not know you, that they would come to you and come to know your freedom. And, O oh Lord, bless those of us who have fallen back into bondage, that having begun with the Spirit, we've returned to legalism. Free us from it and enable us to serve you in the way that you intended when you died for us. In your name, amen. I'm going to finish by singing Love Divine, All Loves Except...